Before we start the show, I just wanted to remind all our listeners to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Thin Air Podcast and on Twitter at Thin Air Podcast. We encourage you to help us get the word out about these unsolved missing persons cases by sharing our posts and retweeting our episodes. Thin Air is an independently produced podcast. That means that Jordan and I do all the work ourselves, from researching the cases to editing the episodes and everything in between. In many ways, this has become like a full-time job for us. With that being said, if you'd like to support the work we do so that we can continue to deliver you the highest quality storytelling, please consider becoming a donor of ours on Patreon. Patreon is a website focused on allowing fans to directly support their favorite artists through monthly pledges. You can donate any amount monthly, and trust me, every dollar really helps us. If you'd consider giving us a pledge, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thinairpodcast. And to everyone who has already pledged, thank you so much. Now, on with the show. It overrides everything else for me right now. It's it's predominant. It's everything I think about from the time I go to bed to waking up. I feel bad because I I feel like I've been unavailable to my other kids emotionally and, and mentally. I, I'm just so focused on, on getting through that I, I haven't been able to uh, focus on uh, the kids and the grandkids I, I do have. The morning of September 1st, 2015 was warmer than usual for Utah. The St. George Municipal Airport registers the temperature at around 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Mason Smith, a 17-year-old high school student at Desert Hills High, is heard going downstairs, fixing some breakfast in the kitchen, and then leaving through the garage door. It wasn't unusual for his parents, Tracy and Darren, to still be in bed when Mason left for school. He was working on becoming more independent despite some personal obstacles like social anxiety and depression. And so, Mason left like he did most mornings, off to catch the bus for what would have been his second week at school. Mason's parents heard the garage door close from their bedroom, a usual sign that their son was leaving on time. Everything seemed normal that Tuesday morning, but that would be the last time anyone would ever hear or see from Mason again. St. George, Utah was a new world for Mason. His family had moved there recently and he was beginning to adjust to his new surroundings. The Smiths moved around a lot throughout the years, so a new home in a new place was something Mason was used to. Mason, for the most part, was a homebody and had, over the years, taken a preference to staying inside and playing video games or watching anime. Looking at the most recent pictures of Mason, you couldn't guess that he might have been facing some personal struggles. At 6'4", he appears tall and commanding for a teenager, but not intimidating. His 200-pound frame and size 14 shoes made him stand out amongst his peers, almost as equally as his blue eyes. 
His blonde hair was always kept the same, relatively short, almost shaved, a style he defaulted to despite multiple attempts to try new ones. As a young kid, Mason was relatively happy, despite a slight speech impediment which affected the way he pronounced certain words. While subtle, it remains, along with Mason's height, one of his most distinguishable features. When Mason entered junior high, things started to turn more bleak. He would tell his parents almost daily that he felt as if he was being bullied at school. Despite the bullying and as the years went on, Mason made multiple attempts to fit in, trying out for both basketball and football. The bullying and rejection had gotten so bad though that Mason contemplated suicide. Most recently in Mason's life, however, was the transition from Canada to St. George, Utah. Mason, being the youngest of Tracy and Darren's six children, was the last to be living at home, and so for the first six months of the move to Utah, it was just Tracy and Mason living together at home. Tracy, Mason's mother, and the woman you heard at the beginning of this episode, explains. I, I would say out of all the family members, we were the closest um, most recently be- because of the move, and, and uh, it was just he and I at the house for six months prior to his disappearance because Darren was working up north. Our communication was was good, like it could have been better. It's not like we sat down and told each other our feelings um, every day because he's a teenage boy. I, I remember he'd get annoyed when I'd say, how was your day at school? He's like, I'm so tired of that question. It's like, well, I don't know how else to ask it. And so I, I said, would a number system work better? Like, how is your day from 1 to 10? You can just give me a number. So he he was going through that, you know, I want to be independent. I want to make my own decisions. And I, I don't need a, a mom hovering over me. As far as Tracy and Darren could tell, Mason seemed to be his usual self following their move to St. George and in the days leading up to his disappearance. They felt confident in their assessment of Mason. After all, they had already raised five other children over the span of their 30-year marriage. I was raised on Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, I left home when I was 18 and, and went down to California, and that's where I met my husband. I met and married uh, Darren in the Bay Area. And, you know, some of our dating experiences were San Francisco and Santa Cruz. Um, that's uh, where our family started. Now, nearly 30 years later, the three of them lived together in St. George, Utah, a place where Mason hadn't really yet had time to establish any solid social network. He didn't have time to really establish a good network of, of friends. And uh, he was involved in summer school over the summer. So he, he didn't even have that kind of leisure time to to hang out with the, the kids in the neighborhood because he, he was busy. However, it is quite possible that even if Mason had the time, that he still would have preferred to avoid social situations. He had his rituals. He going to school and 
doing his um, schoolwork and, and just uh, watching his anime and he liked gaming and he didn't like going out. He didn't really like socializing. So that that was a a source of conflict because we, we know how important socialization is uh, for those teenage years. So it was a push to get him out the door for those youth activities once a week and um, sometimes church. And other than that, he really didn't want to go out. Because Mason was predominantly introverted, he tended to prefer being in his own company, at home on his computer or watching television. In fact, this had been a consistent issue in the Smith house, and it was most certainly an issue on August 31st, 2015, the night before Mason goes missing. So I came home late Monday night, which for me late is uh, 8.39 o'clock, and Mason was already in bed, and and that's odd for him to be in bed that early. So I went in his room, and I asked if everything was okay, and he said he was feeling sick. And so I just sat on the side of his bed. I, I patted his head for a bit and just kissed him on the head and, and said goodnight, and I, I left the room. And I, I went in and talked with my husband, and I, I said, that's that's odd that he's in, in bed. And Darren's perspective was, oh, I, I think he's, he's trying to avoid uh, me right now because, you know, uh, Darren was supposed to take him driving that afternoon, and, and Mason did not want to practice driving. He just wanted to stay home. So... He, he thinks he just pretended he was uh, sick so he could avoid <laughs> driving time. And why didn't he want to go driving? He told me he had a, a fear of driving. He was afraid he would get in a car accident or he, it was a confidence thing. He, his confidence wasn't there yet. And so he, he tended to put that off. So uh, Darren was trying to encourage him to get his hours done. So uh, that's the conversation as, as we were going to, to sleep. And, and typically on school nights, uh, as parents, when it came about the 10 o'clock hour, that was the time to shut off electronics in our house and prepare to bed, go to bed. And our kids could stay up later if they were reading or studying, but we, we like to uh, get the electronics away from the kids. So um, Mason at, at times would stay on his laptop later and, you know, it wasn't a huge issue, but it, it would come up every now and again where where we'd go in, it'd be 11, 12, 1, 2, and he'd still be on his laptop. So because school had just started the week before, um, I had started the practice of un- unplugging the internet at, at 10 o'clock at night. Um, and we had this conversation again, going to bed. Uh, you know, Darren said, I, I, something doesn't feel right. Um, I, I think he's, he's probably going to be in his room on his laptop all night. And I said, well, I'll, I'll go 
pull the cord. Um, and sometimes I would hide the cord. Most of the time I would because, you know, kids are smart enough just to put the cord back in the wall for the internet. So this night I was particularly tired and, and lazy. And so I just unplugged it from the wall and went to bed and, um, I, I was woken up around one thirty, two in the morning, and Darren said, I, I just got up to check on Mason, and he was on his laptop like, like I suspected, and he plugged the cord back into the wall, and and I just kind of rolled over and went back to sleep, um, and, and then he proceeded to, to tell me as I was falling asleep that um, he had taken his laptop and, and his, his phone so he wouldn't be tempted for the rest of the night and pull an all-nighter on a school night. So I, I knew we had his electronics in our room. Then we slept through the rest of the night. So that's from 2 to about 7 is when we typically wake up Mason. And Darren went and knocked on his door to, to make sure he was awake and Mason said, yep, I'm up, and I, I was still in bed, and around 7.35, 7.40, I heard him kind of wrestling in the, the kitchen, so I was assuming he was getting some breakfast, because his bus leaves at about 7.45-ish, and I heard the garage door open and close, and that's the last I, I heard um, of Mason. So the last time I actually physically saw him was actually Monday night. As the day goes on, Tracy and Darren have no reason to suspect that Mason is missing. As far as they know, Mason took his backpack, school books, and wallet with him when he left. He would probably be returning home shortly after the bus dropped him off from school. When four o'clock came and Mason never returned, Mason's dad, Darren, got worried. So I got a text from Darren at work and it was, oh, I would say four o'clock uh, Tuesday afternoon saying Mason didn't come home. And at first I thought, oh, he's he's just avoiding Darren, the, the conflict of you know, having his laptop confiscated. He's probably at the park. Um, he's probably just um, waiting till I, I got home or I, I don't know. I was just predicting that he was avoiding. And um, I, I came home uh, around dinner time and uh, I uh, started contacting people in the area. Remember, Darren and Tracy have all of Mason's technology, including his laptop and cell phone, still in their bedroom. Got Mason's phone and started texting uh, his latest contacts on there, um, hoping that maybe he was uh, going to a youth activity that night. So that was my first train of thought is Maybe he was just hanging around with some of the kids in the neighborhood and was just going to attend uh, that activity. 
and all the kids uh, responded that they hadn't seen him. And I, I still wasn't thinking that he was missing, missing. Again, I I thought, oh, he's, he's probably just biding the time. And Darren and I talked about it, and we, we decided that if he wasn't back by curfew, which is that 10 o'clock hour, that uh, we would call the police, and that's what we did. He didn't show up at 10. He didn't show up at all. So we contacted the police and and filed a report. Okay, so then 10 o'clock happens and you call the police. What was what was sort of the response that you got from the police at that point? So the police officer was was very kind and he 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 said, "I'll you know, I'm working all night. I'll I'll be driving around. I'll just keep my eyes open for your son and and I I was relieved by that thinking, yeah, this six foot four teenager walking around um, the neighborhood at night. He's, he's surely going to be found. Um, and, you know, he came back with nothing. Was there any in investigation after that? What events came the, the days sort of right after he went missing? It felt like we were left to our own devices as far as how to proceed after, after that reporting. I, I felt like there was no rule book as far as what do you do when a child goes missing it it felt like it was handled as well he's a runaway they they tend to come back you know in a day or two and it it just felt like a waiting game and i was very panicky once i started making calls to you know the bus station, the bus depot or the school bus and just finding out, well, who is this bus driver? He's only been doing it for a week or so and tracking down the bus number and, and uh, the bus driver and, and questioning him and tracking down kids that were riding on the bus with him previously and asking if he's he was acting funny or there, there was one boy in, in our neighborhood that's similar to Mason's age that sat with him on the bus every day and and I questioned him and questioned people at the school and and I, I felt like I was in panic mode just trying to gather any information, any breadcrumbs that I could. At this point, even though Tracy and Darren are definitely worried about their son, they thought maybe he could still be out blowing off steam from the night before and that he would eventually come home. In fact, Mason had run off before after a surprisingly similar situation. There was one time, same scenario, Daniel. He was on his um, laptop and it was early morning hours and one of us uh, took his laptop away and 
in his uh, Xbox, and he kind of threw a fit. I, I heard the front door close, and I went down to see what was going on, and he just walked out the front door, and it was negative temperatures. It was freezing. And so I was extremely worried and and also called for professional help that night. Um, and I, I was out looking for a couple of hours and I had the police looking too. And he came home, I'd say about three, three and a half hours later. And he had brought a sleeping bag and brought supplies and everything, but he he still got cold and came back home. And he was hoping for a reception of, um, oh, we we missed you. Uh, what's going on? And we were so so sick with worry that we were just. Our reaction was instead, what were you thinking? You know, what were you thinking going out in negative 12 temperatures or um, just that kind of questioning? And so I, I know that's something that left an impression on him. And if I was to do a do-over, it would be to have that reaction of love and and acceptance when when he came in however this most recent time mason didn't return and he didn't take with him any supplies or leave any indication as to where he might be headed quickly the news of mason's disappearance began to spread through the small town of saint george Flyers went up, searches were conducted, and everyone was on the lookout. The first credible sighting of Mason comes from multiple witnesses who insist they saw a tall, blonde teenager wearing a pair of cargo shorts standing at a freeway on-ramp holding a sign indicating they were looking to get to Vegas. I believe that was a, a Wednesday sighting, so that would be September 2nd, and there was multiple people, I would say almost five that said we saw a tall blonde teenager on the side of the road with a handmade um, written sign saying Vegas and um, this was just off the off ramp that was down from the school we had people describe what he's wearing and we, I know Darren jumped in the car and he went to Vegas right away. And they walked the strip and they, they looked for Mason. And uh, I stayed home as, as somebody to be a contact at home. And those sightings were called in and the description was, t-shirt and khaki cargo pants and Mason does not own a pair of khaki cargo pants unless you know that was a disguise he was and it was forethought I, I don't know but 
that was one item where I was like, I don't know if that was him. And eventually down the line, we were able to get surveillance from the the Chevron that would have had um, some kind of view of that exit. And Darren looked through him and he he ruled it out. It wasn't Mason. It was a, another teenage boy that wasn't as tall and didn't have as big as a frame and and wasn't wearing Mason clothing. I know, again, uh, you know, within the community, a lot of people say, I know for sure that was him. For sure that was him off that exit and you had your chance and and uh, people need to trust that we know what our son looks like and uh, it was ruled out, so... As the days went by without any confirmed sightings, the Smiths themselves were beginning to uncover clues. Starting with the discovery of items they believed Mason had with him on the day he disappeared. I even thought he had brought his school books um, until I looked in his closet. He, He had hidden his school books under a dirty pile of clothes. So, um... You know, again, it was almost setting us up for, yeah, I went to school, (laughs) so don't look for me for a while. There was no sleeping bags or backpacks or uh, supplies like that that we could see that was missing. So he, in our opinion, went with the clothes off off his back, and, and that's it. The clothes off his back that day are anyone's guess, since no one actually saw him leave the house that morning. However, based on his style trends, it's speculated that he left wearing a t-shirt, basketball shorts, and a pair of size 14 black Nike running shoes with blue soles and green eyelets. He didn't have any electronic devices with him when he left as they had been confiscated the night before by his father. Even Mason's wallet was discovered in the back of a drawer in his room. The initial comb through of the wallet yielded nothing unordinary. Yet, upon second inspection, his parents discovered a three-page note neatly folded up and stored discreetly inside his wallet. While the family has, understandably, kept the content of the note private, Tracy shared with me what she could. There was nothing to indicate where he was headed, but it was indeed a, a letter of intent, uh, a letter that stated he was going to go harm himself. Um, I, I knew within the second line of reading it what kind of letter it was, and and it uh, was devastating for me to read uh, the pain and and the sorrow that he was feeling internally. Um, I often would check in with him and and ask him if he was uh, struggling and if he needed to get help as far as uh, counseling because he he had had that kind of support before. Um, But most recently, I would describe Mason as a, a happy contented teenager that um, seemed to be adjusting well to to the new surroundings. So to read how 
alone and isolated he felt um, truly broke my heart. Um, it was approximately three pages, and I would say the bulk of it was just describing um, his internal conflict and and his angst and and feeling like he's lost himself over the years and that he was no longer a happy-go-lucky kid and he felt like he had nothing really to look forward to. Why do you suspect that that letter was in his wallet as opposed to, say, on the bed or on the desk or someplace where it would have been very obvious? Yeah, I I thought about that. It it uh, makes sense to me that he didn't want us to find it until later. That because his wallet was even kind of tucked away in his second drawer. You know, it wasn't like it was laying out. It it was in a place where you had to purposefully look uh, for it and in it. So I I suspect that that's something he didn't want us to find for a bit. With the new information that Mason might have left home that morning with the intent to hurt himself, the family organizes a series of searches in the immediate St. George area, all of which, to this date, have yet to yield any clues. With no leads from initial searches, weeks and months go by without any word from Mason, no one knowing if he left to hurt himself or if he just wanted to start over someplace new. It's possible, based on a series of conversations Mason had with his mother and a friend, that he had thought about leaving before and even planned how he would do it and where he would go. A conversation I had with him uh, I would say a year before, and that's that's something you wouldn't typically think was credible in a in a conversation like you're you're just shooting a breeze so it's a conversation I'm just having with him and he said uh, you know sometimes I just feel like it would be nice just to to disappear for a while and I I have thoughts like that I just yeah take a break and go off the grid for a while so I I was going with the conversation and I said, well, where would you go? And he said, uh, he thought about it and he said, I, I think it'd be California. Um, and I said, oh, well, you know, as long as you let your mama know. And he said, I don't think I would. And I said, well, that would be cruel. I, I said, you, you need to know, let me know where you are. And at the time, I I didn't think anything of it, but you know, in retrospect, I'm I'm like, was he trying to tell me something then that he was thinking about, um, you know, future future uh, plans? And and then my girlfriend, who we stayed with on one of our trips down to Utah when we were looking to move back. Uh, she said she had a very in-depth conversation of uh, with Mason in regards to 
living off the grid and and being a beach bum is is what their conversation was uh, you know going to california and becoming a beach bum and my my girlfriend was saying she's like i i couldn't believe how detailed he was like he he really thought this plan out and uh that's something that came up months after his disappearance too was that conversation she she had with with mason why california well we we would vacation there almost yearly i would say we'd take the kids and one of the things we'd regularly do in the fall during fall break was was go to six flags um and then we'd go to malibu or uh one of the beaches over there it it was a place where we had really really good family memories and and that's all mason would know about california with with those positive um memories with the idea that mason might have left voluntarily coupled with the fact that he might have gone to california the family organizes a movement to get the word out about Mason's disappearance beyond St. George. They start with social media, taking to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and most recently YouTube. Almost immediately, sightings of Mason appear all over the country, from anime conventions in Sacramento to a subway in Utah. Despite the numerous leads, so far none have been confirmed as Mason. It's been slightly over a year since Mason left his parents' house, and though he was 17 when he left, he would be 18 today and legally considered an adult. Some people have criticized Tracy for continuing to search for her son, saying things like, he's an adult now, if he wants to be missing, then that's his right. But for Tracy and her family, Mason's transition into adulthood hasn't changed anything, including their love for Mason. For us, it's, it hasn't changed at all because it's it's always been are you okay we, we want to know if he's if he's okay and if he needs help and if he's been held against his will somewhere we you know those unanswered questions are are the same and they remain the same and, and that's that's also what i would say in response to you know some of the theories of why he left why he left to me is is unimportant as to where he is and if he's safe. For law enforcement, I, I think the intensity is probably diminished a bit because he is an adult. However, I want to assure everybody they're they're still on it. They still wanna see a positive outcome from this scenario. To this day, there have been no confirmed sightings of Mason Smith. I wanted to know how Tracy got through these incredibly trying times, what kept her going through the darkest hours. So what role has faith played in this journey for you so far? It's it's played a tremendous role uh, to the extreme of I I really don't know how other people do it, um, get, get through this kind of pain. Because it's something I've had to rely on daily is is my faith in in God and faith in in a plan and perspective that is greater than I can see with it's 
it's just been um, something that I've had to to lean on wholeheartedly, and without it, I I don't know that I'd be functioning as well as I am right now. I I've never considered myself a super patient person. And and this just pushes my patients to the limit where, uh, you know, sometimes I feel like a toddler throwing a tantrum because I'm not getting my way. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm asking uh, God for help and guidance. And, and I, I've certainly been lifted and um, carried through by by angels on earth and angels on the other side. Um, but it's, it's, it's almost like I'm saying, well, thanks God. I, I appreciate you um, giving me these, these great um, tender mercies, but could I, could I just get the, the big prize? You know, could I, could I just get what I want? Um, and, and that's where the patient's, peace comes in is it's it's not my will it's it's his will um and i have to keep referring back to that which it's 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 been trying to say the least For pictures of Mason, please visit our website at thinairpodcast.com. If you have any information about where Mason might be, or if you believe you've seen him recently, feel free to contact us via our website or contact the St. George Police Department. I would like to thank Tracy Bratt-Smith for talking with me and Taylin Johnson for helping us connect. Today's episode featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. You can check out their music at sessions.blue. This episode also featured music from Chris Zabriskie. His music can be found at chriszabriskie.com. We also had some original music donated to us from a dear friend of ours. We'll be back in two weeks with some exciting announcements.